what has happened in Australian education in the last two months is nothing short of miraculous. The way teachers have completely changed the delivery of all the curriculum. It's pretty phenomenal, actually. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Today, I'm speaking with Ellen Ronalds Keane, the founder of Self Care for Teachers and a former high school teacher herself. Based in the regional Queensland city of Toowoomba, she's also the host of the Teacher Wellbeing podcast and runs her own podcast production agency called Perk Digital. I got in touch with Ellen after spotting a Facebook post she wrote as schools and families were grappling with the upheaval of the COVID-19 crisis. It was in response to the Prime Minister Scott Morrison broadcasting his plea to teachers, urging them to keep schools open and highlighting the critical role they play in educating our nation's children. Ellen gave a really moving insight into what teachers are experiencing, not only now, during one of the biggest disruptions to our education system that we've ever seen, but the everyday challenges teachers were facing in their roles, even before this crisis hit. Having experienced some major health challenges in her own life, I was also intrigued by Ellen's career change journey, from teacher to podcaster to wellbeing coach and advocate. And she has some really great insights to share around the perks and pitfalls of starting your own business. Here's my chat with Ellen Ronalds Keane. So Ellen, you started your career as a high school teacher up in central Queensland. Can you tell us a bit about where you grew up and what was it that drew you to teaching? Um, yeah, so I grew up in Yapoon, uh, which is on the central Queensland coast, beautiful spot. And I guess what drew me to teaching, um, I mean, I liked school myself and I had, uh, it's, it's a pretty common story, I think, in teachers. I had some really inspiring teachers myself. Uh, and so then I, I pursued my, I suppose, passions of music and Japanese, which is what I uh, was trained in as a high school teacher. Um, I pursued particularly the Japanese. Um, there was a, a really good language course at Central Queensland University uh, when I was going through and it just happened to come with a teaching degree. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good because uh, I, you know, I like, I like school. I had some great inspiring teachers. I wanted to study the language. I was pretty happy to teach the language. And then it was actually my first teaching prac, uh, which was in my first year of uni that I got in the classroom and I was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely, definitely something that I enjoy. So I guess that's where it started. Oh, great. So what was the process to become a teacher? You mentioned you were at uni. So how mm. long, what course did you do and how long did it take? Well, I actually did a Bachelor of Learning Management uh, specialising in Japanese, which is probably not, it's not your standard. Uh, I mean, it's, <laughs> if, if you want to be a, a language teacher, you need to obviously have a speciali- specialty in language, but uh, most education courses are a Bachelor's of Education, Central Queensland University uh, went a little bit different and did a Bachelor of Learning Management. And I remember from the beginning, there was a, a focus on the fact that this this degree was also preparing you for other learning contexts, not just school teaching, um, which I think was really, in hindsight, really valuable to me because it meant that I, I didn't feel completely like this was the only path that I could ever do. There was always a focus on knowledge work and the, I suppose, the ways learning is required in all sorts of different industries now 
and it took me five years, which is longer than it's supposed to, but I had some health uh, challenges along the way. Um, so I think that it was f- a four years standard and you could accelerate it and do it in three years if you did summer terms, which I did initially, but then, yeah, had some health challenges. So we didn't quite stick to that schedule. <laughs> right. And you said when you got to do your prac in the classroom, you loved it. So what what did you love about it? I don't know. I just enjoyed it. I really, I, I like teenagers, I guess. Um, and, and I think that's a, a prerequisite. Um, I do just think they're kind of cool humans and it's a really interesting phase of development. Uh, and I guess because I was in music and Japanese classrooms, I really, really love those subjects. There's a bit of a, I suppose, a, a saying among teachers that primary school teachers love the kids, high school teachers love their subject. Yeah. So I, I absolutely love the subject, but also the seeing the, the light, bulb, light bulb moments in the, on students' faces. And then you started working. So what did a typical work day look like for you back then? Um, jam-packed, definitely started really early and often finished quite late. So, um, I mean, I was working in Rockhampton at the time and living in Rockhampton, so I didn't have much of a commute, which was good, but I would try and get to school really early and, you know, do uh, paperwork and emails and, and those sorts of things and, and making sure that I was prepared for my lessons for the day. And um, I was full-time teaching back then, so I, the hours between 8.30 and 3.30 were pretty much nonstop um, in the classroom, running between lessons to grab resources or pick up photocopying or, you know, go to a playground duty. And then I remember at the time I was, I, because I was a, you know, new teacher and they, every school has different systems for how they arrange it, but how, how playground duties get allocated, I ended up with bus duties. Um, So I would then, as soon as the bell went, I'd have to be running to get to the, you know, bus stop to, to supervise the kids getting on their various buses to go. Uh, to go home. And then there was often, you know, a meeting or a staff meeting or something like that after school. So then once all of that contact time is done, then the paperwork begins and you have to start preparing for tomorrow or uh, marking assignments and exams and then doing report cards and all of those sorts of other uh, paperwork-based things that teachers have to do. Right. So very busy days by mm, the sound. <laughs> yeah. And do you have any favourite memories from that time when you were teaching? I mean, I remember it being, it was very exciting. It was really hard in a lot of ways. And I was at a big state school um, in Rockhampton and, you know, behaviour of students was really tough. Behaviour management was definitely a big challenge. Um, But I also remember it being quite exciting because it was like, oh, my God, you know, I've been preparing for this for so long and now I get to do it myself. And Actually, I do probably one favorite memory. I had a particular grade nine music class. I don't know if you remember the song Friday by Rebecca Black. Um, it was a really oh, bad yes. song. <laughs> she just, you know, it was a pop song and it was really cheesy and the lyrics didn't really make sense. And it was just about Friday and being excited for the weekend. And I remember <laughs> I ended up in this bit of a uh, ritual with my particular grade nine music class who we had music on a Friday and we would play that song initially it was a bit of a joke and then it became this kind of ritual that the whole class got behind and every single Friday we would play that song and um so that that was really lovely because it was just obviously not really curriculum focused but not completely it was a music class and we were studying (laughs) pop and rock music so it kind of theoretically fit and it but it was really just a bonding moment so actually that that's probably the the one of those things that I will remember forever um that kind of that song, every time I'll hear it, it will remind me of that particular bunch of kids. 
Oh, well, they say you remember how things made you feel, don't they? So if you exactly. were having a joyous moment, that's going to stick with you. <laughs> Um, (laughs) And I'm sure, you know, we probably all have some sense of how tough a job teaching must be, particularly high school students, which, um, yeah, I think I'd be a little bit terrified of teenagers (laughs) myself. But, I mean, what did you find some of the challenges to be? You mentioned some of the behaviour management. Mm. Um, Yeah, what were some of the trickier moments? Well, I had a death threat um, from a student who uh, was and I'll have to be careful about how much I say, but essentially he could have carried it out. So that was probably a low light. Uh, And definitely behaviour management is just generally a challenge. I think it's especially a challenge when you are new in a school because you don't have any relationships yet with the students. And one of the, I suppose, the the best parts about teaching is that rewarding sense that you get of, you know, it's the human contact and and the rapport and the relationships that you build with students. But it's also one of the most uh, important facets of behavior management because if you don't have a relationship with the student you you actually you don't know them very well you don't know how they work or how they you know tick um, and having a relationship with a student and a particular relationship of, of trust is one of the best ways to actually get them to cooperate I mean because if they trust you and they like you they're more likely to do what you want and um and when I think about some other really challenging students in my career they're ones that I had over probably a longer period of time and taught for a longer period of time. And even though we might still have had lots of challenging moments in the classroom, there was still a, a relationship built over time. And so I think the 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 best bit and the hardest bit is that emotional labor that teachers do of, you know, of building those relationships. Right. And I mean, how stressful is it as a job? You mentioned the workload's pretty massive. You obviously, you know, there's a lot to figure out in terms of building that rapport with the students. Was it a stressful job? Yeah, it is a stressful job. Um, and, uh, and again, some of those stresses don't necessarily get easier the more years you do it, but you get more prepared for them. So, for example, there is a bit of a uh, an ebb and flow to, you know, a cycle of the workload throughout the year and term time is very busy, but then you do get some school holidays and teachers do work on their school holidays and, and you know, I think that's important for the general public to remember that, that teachers are not necessarily on vacation the way the kids are, but you just get a little bit better at uh, preparing for and knowing the wheel of the year, the calendar of the year, I suppose, and the ebbs and flows in the in the workload and in the stress um, throughout that time. But I, it is a stressful career, and there's a lot of there's a lot of deadlines just in terms of getting the you know the day to day classwork done. Like it's a pretty high pace just to make sure that you're prepared for all your lessons every day and then you got to do all mm. the marking and reporting and assessing and, and all of that tends to be uh, invisible work like you know there's a lot of conversations these days around mental load and you know visible and invis- invisible work in in different industries and I think it's uh, I think it's particularly relevant for education that we recognize that a teacher's job doesn't only happen in the classroom there's actually a whole lot of work that has to happen outside of hours in just in order for that classroom stuff to go normally you know to go smoothly and then on top of that there's a whole lot of extra uh, an increasing amount of uh, I suppose administravia that's maybe not actually related to that day-to-day cycle of teaching and learning and often smacks of ah this is just some kind of accountability measure so the government can tick a box somewhere Um, that's Mm. the stuff that tends to be 
not only stressful but really frustrating and create a sense of like what are we doing this for um and yeah and then you know obviously the emotional load as well of just working with humans all day every day and sometimes those humans are really difficult (laughs) and require a lot of energy I'm sure um you mentioned health challenges that you'd had Mm. earlier while you were studying how did they were they still impacting you when you were teaching yeah definitely um probably more than I realized at the time like when I think back in hindsight very much so um, so when I was at university, I, I, I got glandular fever, which was pretty common, and then I basically didn't get better for three years. Um, so I, I ended up with chronic fatigue syndrome and, and had to slow down my uni because, you know, that's um, a difficult condition to manage. And I was fortunate, I suppose, in that it wasn't so severe that I couldn't do anything. I just had to, I had to pull back a lot, um, but I was still able to progress some of my, some of my work um, doing you know uni part-time for a couple of years and then just at the end of my uni degree uh they or I found a lump in my neck and uh, went to the doctor and it turned out that I had thyroid cancer so I had surgery to remove my thyroid at the end of um I had one teaching prac left so uh, I was about six months away from finishing my degree in fact I was and I was six months away from starting my teaching career full-time so when I did have that first you know first day out of school, first day in the classroom, all of that, it it had been six months since I'd had uh, treatment and surgery for thyroid cancer. And that's, in hindsight, not a very long time. At the time, I felt like I was okay. I'd, you know, and I was, I'd been given the, the all clear, but it's still not a long time, you know, mentally and emotionally to adjust to something like that. And it's also not a long time for the body to adjust to losing such a vital organ. So obviously I'm, I have to take thyroid medication now because the thyroid produces hormones that are essential to live. Um, mm. And it takes a while for the body to kind of find its equi- equilibrium again. Um, mm. So, yeah, in hindsight, I was not 100% yet. And then, of course, I began this career that requires you to really push your body really and your mind really hard. Um, yeah, so the health challenges were not done. <laughs> Right. Well, you did end up deciding to leave teaching at the mm. end of 2016. So was that related to those health challenges and, and how hard was that decision? Yeah. So just for context, the thyroid cancer and my last year of uni was 2010 and then my first year full-time teaching was 2011. And over the next couple of years, I had a number of other health things come up um, and a number of other surgeries for various things, you know, some fairly standard, like getting my wisdom teeth out, but um, also I was diagnosed with endometriosis as well. So um, what I now know is that that also has a big impact on energy and, um, you know, the, the kinds of ways that I these days try and adjust my lifestyle to fit in with my menstrual cycles so that I'm, you know, not forcing myself to do really hard or really um, having to show up in person somewhere on a day when I'm going to be in quite a lot of pain, I I didn't have any of that understanding at the time and I would just drug myself Mm. through the week. (laughs) Once a month I would just basically get through the school week surviving on Nurofen and Panadol, which is not very healthy, um, but you do Mm. what you got to do to survive. Um, And and also, I'm sure a lot of people would agree that it's it's not really uh, culturally okay to say, hey, I need some time off every week for my period. Like that's just not something that, uh, especially when you're in insecure employment and I was on temporary contracts for a couple of years before I got a permanent job, it's not something that you say because it makes you look like a flake. Whether or not 
you are of Lake is absolutely not true because it's a legitimate uh, medical condition. But yeah, it's not very well understood and it's certainly not the kind of thing that you necessarily want your colleagues to know either. Um, no, that's tough, isn't it? I mean, it's getting yeah. more attention now, but that's a fairly recent thing and I, I think Quite it's still recent. probably a very difficult thing just to raise with a manager or particularly yeah. if it's not a female manager potentially. Yeah, um, all, you know, with any manager I think. Um, but, yeah, and also just because you don't necessarily want to broadcast your cycle to the world. Like it's kind of it's still medical private information. It's nothing to be ashamed of, but that doesn't mean that it's public, you know. But so I experimented a little bit and thankfully I had a really supportive school who um, they didn't necessarily know my whole medical history, but they certainly knew about the thyroid cancer and the the challenges because I also just had some ups and downs with the levels of medication having to change and that sort of thing. So my thyroid hormones were sort of a bit of a roller coaster for a little while there. Um, so I experimented for a couple of years with the support of my school with with various levels of part-time teaching. So we tried four days a week and three days a week. And within that time, I'd sort of gone four days a week for a while and then went back up to full-time once I was well again. And very quickly, we all realized that was not going to make me, that was not good for me. So we sort of did some experiments, you know, six months on this fraction and six months on that fraction. And the last fraction I tried was three days a week, which was actually pretty good. Um, and then the only, the main challenge was that I had also gotten married and my husband's job and, and the home that we bought was a hundred kilometers away from the school that I was working at. And it was a wonderful school. And I really was very happy there. And it's, um, it came to this kind of decision point for, for me where it was like, well, this school is fantastic for my health. They're supporting me, but I had this really long commute and that wasn't so great for my health. You know, obviously that was adding two and a half hours to my day and I did used to stay in the town a couple of times a week but it was still adding a fair amount of driving and there was also this sense of if I like the the I suppose the trajectory that most people's career takes most women's career in teaching they teach full-time for however long and when they have a family then they move to the three days a week fraction I was like well if I'm already on three days a week if one day we add children into this equation, where do I have to reduce to? Like it was a real kind of aha moment around if I had to transfer to a school in the town where I, where my husband and my house was, then I would have to go back to full time. And we just knew that that was no good for my health. We'd tried it. We'd, you know, done all the experiments. It was definitely making me sick when I was working full time. So yeah, there was a couple of things at once where it really became clear that I needed to do something else. So you were actually enjoying teaching, but all of these challenges just started to make it absolutely almost impossible by the sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was no it was not a case of either me not being good at teaching or me not liking teaching. Like I said, there were definitely challenges, but there were also but the by the time I'd got to that part-time um fraction, the the rewards were far outweighing the challenges. But looking long term, I could see, well, this is not gonna work forever. Well, you started uh, self-care for teachers while you were still, I believe, coming to the end of your teaching career. And actually, you mentioned your wedding. I met, I read that the idea came to you while you were on your honeymoon yes. in Iceland, which sounds yes. pretty amazing. It was. Um, but for our listeners, can you explain what self-care for teachers is and, you know, what did it look like in those early days mm. and, and what what you were hoping to achieve with it? 
Yeah, so self-care for teachers is is a uh, it's evolved a fair amount since those days, but it's a it's an online wellbeing hub um, where I provide wellbeing coaching and also health and wellbeing information and resources for school teachers um, to be able to prioritize their health and wellbeing as people first and teachers second, because a lot of teachers and I was this teacher myself, a lot of teachers um, identify so much with the job and and care about the work so much that they really put their own health and wellbeing last until there's some kind of health crisis uh, and burnout is a, is a huge issue in teaching these days. And then only then do they start to think about their health and well-being. And I, and I, in some ways, because of my health experiences at university and, you know, as challenging as they were at the time and, and have since, you know, the fallout from that has still been challenging, it really prevented me from making some of the mistakes that other teachers make because I was physically incapable of pushing myself, you know, so, so far um, that I would burn out. I, I just couldn't do that. Um, and my body was, I suppose, putting on the brakes for me. But I'd also learnt some lessons really early in life that a lot of people don't learn till they're, you know, 40s or 50s or 60s, which is that actually if you don't have health, the rest of life gets so much harder and and prioritising health and and the important relationships in your life is is more important than any isolated work achievement. I was also observing some of the ways my colleagues were and colleagues at my school but also my friends that I'd gone to uni with who are now out in the in the world I was just observing how other teachers were finding things as well and and how there were some problems um, that were caused by the education system and there were some I suppose patterns of behavior that teachers had that and have that were undermining their health and well-being as well. So self-care for teachers sort of sprang from that idea and I and I was on my honeymoon in in Iceland standing between tectonic plates at uh, Thingvella <laughs> National Park when I kind of had this, I suppose, an idea for like, oh, I've been doing all this learning and research about health and well-being and all these different aspects and I have this really strong lived experience that makes me know how important this is. I could share that with my with my teacher friends. That was really the initial idea and it started as a Facebook group, which is now archived, but um, it started as a Facebook group of just me sharing what I had learned and my, you know, my experiences and then it kind of grew from there. Well, you, you have grown quite a following in the past <laughs> few years. So did you find that there was a real appetite for this and a need for it straight away? Did you tap into something that a lot of teachers were experiencing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It um it definitely seemed to resonate and you know, my immediate teacher network was sharing the the Facebook group with their networks and it sort of grew and and I was getting a lot of feedback from people saying, "Oh my goodness, this is, you know, so helpful." Um and so then when I was and cuz I you know, while I had been playing with the part-time teaching and then starting to realize this is long-term, I'm going to maybe need to do something else. I had begun a, a some part-time study in in coaching. So I then finished my coaching qualification and thought, well, why don't we why don't we see if this self-care for teacher thing can go somewhere? So I um as you said at the end of 2016, I, I took some leave from my teaching job, leave without pay for a year, which you know you can do when you have a permanent job with the government, and decided to have a go at working for myself and and coaching teachers and and see if I could build self-care for teachers into a business that would sustain me, you know, emotionally and spiritually as well as financially. Mm. 
Well, I'd like to ask you a bit more about the business side of it um, shortly, but I did just want to uh, touch on a Facebook post which um, you wrote recently, which instigated this whole conversation <laughs> with you, which, you know, speaks to the issues that we were just talking about, which is health, I suppose, with mm. the COVID-19 crisis, which is going on that right now, and the collision of that with teaching. And, you know, obviously there's been a huge focus on schools and teachers during these very challenging times and parents are currently experiencing homeschooling for the first time and there's a lot of confusion around, uh, you know, should kids be going to school or not. But, yeah, I mean, I was t- I wanted to reach out to you because I saw this Facebook post that you'd written which was a response to the PM, Scott Morrison, issuing his plea to teachers which our listeners might recall was broadcast nationally a couple of weeks ago now, I guess, at the time of recording this. Can you remind us what the PM spoke about in that message and, and why were you driven to respond? Yeah, so the, the Prime Minister spoke about um, well, a number of things. I mean, he, he really acknowledged that teachers have been working hard during this time. It, just because schools had been on school holidays, they were never actually closed. And I think it's important to make that point. Um, you know, most states added a couple of student-free days or a week of student-free days in some cases to allow teachers time to actually totally redo the whole curriculum basically um, to actually be able to deliver and continue to deliver education to students if they if they weren't unable to come to school, whether from uh, their own health issues or because there was, you know, directives in place that said unless you're a child of an essential worker, you need to stay home. The other, I suppose, thing to point out is that there were a lot of cases of schools that didn't have enough soap and hand sanitizer to actually be able to make sure that everyone could wash their hands like the most basic hygiene stuff schools are running out of you know soap and hand sanitizer and we know like supermarket shelves were also running out of those things so Mm. um it was a, a strange time all around so the the prime minister said we acknowledge the health and you know safety concerns that teachers have because it's also about 30% of the teaching population is nearing retirement age or, you know, at risk in some other way. Um, So the Prime Minister acknowledged that and acknowledged that there were some, you know, at-risk teachers that needed to be uh, measures needed to be put put in place for and that there were some significant concerns around whether hygiene and social distancing measures were able to be carried out at schools. Um, So he acknowledged that. But then he made this kind of plea that said, but please don't give up on the most vulnerable children in Australia. Um, you know, there are a lot of a lot of families and a lot of cases for whom life was really difficult and they were very disadvantaged before COVID. So now COVID has just made things even worse. And so the, I suppose the galling part was the fact that the Prime Minister was referencing these vulnerable and disadvantaged students and families as if teachers needed to be reminded of that when, especially when, uh, and I don't want to go too political, but especially when successive Liberal federal governments have actually not fully funded the Gonski reforms, which were initially uh, put in place to, uh, I suppose, resource those most disadvantaged in our country. So it was especially galling just coming from that. It's like as if teachers need to be reminded of these most vulnerable kids in their classroom, they're already before the pandemic reached our shores, they were already losing sleep over these kids and sometimes for years after they taught them. And then, yeah, that, that, that sort of aspect of like, well, teachers are already doing their bit. Schools have never been closed. In fact, 
what has happened in Australian education in the last two months is nothing short of miraculous. The way teachers have completely, it's educational reform like we've never seen before and it pretty much happened in the space of a week either side of the the school holidays that that always happen around Easter Mm. to completely change the delivery of all the curriculum. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty phenomenal, actually. Um, and so I guess yeah. my alternative plea to teachers was that now more than ever, teachers' role is so important, but also now more than ever, the need for teachers to look after their own health and well-being first. And I don't mean that in a don't go to school if you're worried about um, not having enough hand sanitizer because that's an issue that we can solve. But I mean that from a perspective of a lot of teachers already have this approach where they self-sacrifice and they run themselves down in order to get schoolwork done and in order to meet the deadlines, the report cards, skimping on sleep, surviving on coffee, not having lunch. Um, So my plea to teachers was, hey, now, I've been saying this for five years, stop doing that. Stop acting like lunch is a luxury or a good night's sleep is a luxury. It's not. It's actually vital just for basic survival, let alone for being able to be effective and efficient, you know, during the day. And this goes for everyone, by the way. This is not just teachers. I think this is actually a problem in our in our wider society, this kind of attitude that our basic physiological needs are somehow um, optional. They're not. <laughs> um, yeah. But they're definitely not optional in crisis times, right? Like it's always been important, but like now in this crisis situation, now it's really, really important. And what are you hearing from teachers? I mean, you mentioned that you coach teachers. You obviously have a lot of interaction with them in your um, social media accounts that you run um, mm. alongside self-care for teachers. So yeah, what are you hearing from teachers and what kind of response did you get from teachers to your post? Yeah, I've, I'm I got a lot of response um, to my post and I've been hearing from a lot of teachers in the last, I mean, six weeks really. And that was part of the reason I, I wrote the post because I, you know, I do, I am in conversation with teachers both in, you know, the the private messages of my, of the social media platforms and also in my coaching sessions. And, um, you know, I had definitely been hearing a lot of anxiety before Easter, before there was um, time for teachers to actually redo the curriculum or the delivery of the curriculum, a lot of anxiety, a lot of frustration with uh, the, I suppose, the the, not just the changes because I think everyone is struggling in some way or other. This has impacted all of us across the globe. Um, So more frustration with the, uh, the way some of the realities of the way schools work seem to have been overlooked by the people making decisions. But then certainly from that uh, Prime Minister's plea that he shared with the nation, there was a lot of frustration um, and resentment, I think, particularly around that piece of think, you know, think about the vulnerable children. It was like, what do you think we've been doing the whole time? Um, and, and, you know, if you want to, I really genuinely do hope that Scott Morrison has realised that there are genuinely disadvantaged children in Australia and hopefully that down the track some uh, policy changes will come in that actually support them and support schools to be able to support those kids because they uh, they are more resource intensive to educate than uh, mm. you know other children in Australia. But but then also the other thing I've really been hearing from teachers is they just want things to go back to normal. They miss their students. They really do. And and this has actually been more work. 
this whole, and, and I'm sure anyone listening probably knows about the the challenges with like, oh, we're all going to do this online learning or at-home learning and then the websites all crash and nobody can actually access anything. And, you know, it's it's been super challenging all around, like very much so for parents, very overwhelming for parents. But I also am hearing from a lot of teachers that they they miss their students and they, because that, like I said earlier, like it's those moments in the classroom where you're actually connecting with the human beings in the room on a kind of emotional level. That's actually the bit that most teachers enjoy much more than like teaching long division. Um, that's <laughs> obviously that's part of the job, but like it's actually the the connecting with with the students. And so teachers really missing that um, and wanting to get back to normal as soon as possible, but as long as it's safe and as long as it's managed in a way that doesn't further disadvantage students who are already disadvantaged. Yeah. Well, I think one of the loveliest things I did see on 7.30 recently was all the messages from teachers to their mm. students. I'm not, not sure if you caught that, but it was very heartwarming and I think it really did. You know, we don't often get to hear from teachers directly because there are so many caveats around teachers speaking directly to the media. Mm. So, you know, it was actually really nice, I think, to be reminded that I'm sure for most teachers they are in it because they love the kids and they love yeah. that face-to-face time and this would be a massive upheaval for them as well as for the parents who are dealing with it on the other side right now. Absolutely right. And I've heard some lovely stories too around like after, at the end of doing a huge amount of extra work just to sort of prepare the the work from home curriculum for students then teachers are coming up with other ways that they can connect with the students like you know you know that elf on a shelf game that people play um before christmas like doing things not not the same but you know similar types of things with like a soft toy in the classroom and taking a photo and oh it's in a different place every day and um like just just ways that teachers are finding to still have that connection and connect with the students who are at home and like that's the bit that's been really lovely to hear from teachers as well because they that's the bit that they still love and that's also I think the bit that the students of 2020 are going to remember in 10 years time they will not remember that oh the website crashed and we couldn't access OneNote and you know mum was freaking out because the whatever the curriculum was not working or because my little brother wouldn't do what he was told but I'll just remember those moments of like yeah but Mrs. Gibson sent me that funny video and it was so cool. <laughs> that's that's yeah. what they're going to remember. And, and I think that that's what hopefully we can try and keep in perspective as well. Well, look, I wanted to talk now about the business side of what you do. Mm. So self-care for teachers, as you said, started out as a bit of a passion project while you were um, well, still teaching or on, or on leave from teaching. But once you left teaching, you also needed to survive financially. I read a post where you talked about entrepreneurial poverty being a very real issue and very common. Mm. Can you talk about that and share a bit of the journey that you've been on to figure out how you can earn an income from what you're doing now? Mm, yeah, definitely. And and that term entrepreneurial poverty, I actually got from Mike McCallowitz, who's an American author who um, has written a book called Profit First. He's written a few books. but um, So, I mean, I've only really been in business for myself for just over three years. Uh, I was dabbling before that, but really seriously full-time for, for about three years. And so I don't proclaim to be an expert by any means, <laughs> but I definitely have learned a lot in that time. And I have learned how much I didn't know when I embarked on this journey, the 
I think the online business space. So different to the kind of traditional SME uh, space, I happened to fall into the idea of going into business through online business groups and ideas and podcasts and things. And took me a good 18 months after I'd been in business for myself to realize that I'd actually been learning from online marketers, not online business coaches. They might call themselves business coaches, but they were not necessarily actually grounded in the fundamentals of business. So, you know, it it seems really obvious probably to say this, but like if a business is not making money (laughs) um, or if it's making a loss, there's a problem and you need to do something about that. And so it took me a long time because I was getting a lot of feedback, as we've discussed, a lot of positive feedback from teachers about the work that I was putting out into the world. Um, for a long time, self-care for teachers, I thought that I had validated this this business idea. But what I now realize is that I had validated the concept or the the problem, but not necessarily the business model. So um, self-care for teachers really didn't make money for uh, the first several years. Um, And it's only really been in the last 18 months that I've been able to start to turn that around. And it's still really a side project because I ended up um, starting some freelance work because as you said, I'd left my teaching job in end of 2016. In 2017, I was doing self-care for teachers full-time for about six months and doing a little bit of supply teaching which was bringing some income in. And then I realized, oh, this is not actually suddenly making me a full-time income like I thought it might. Wow, we still have mortgage payments though, right? So what are we going to do? So I I started freelancing and that's, um, long story short, turned into a a second business, which is called Perk Digital, which um, supports people with podcasts primarily uh, and because I do have a podcast for self-care for teachers. It's called the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast. It's been going for three years now. And I was a music teacher, so I have some, you know, sound and audio skills and I have a, a, just a range of other, I suppose, digital skills that I had built up in order to create self-care for teachers. And it turns out that people need those skills. So I started freelancing. And um, my experience of that was that it it took off. Um, so I have these two experiences of business, one where I had all the accolades and all the people saying, yes, we, lo- we love this, we need this, but no money coming in. And then the other one where nobody knew it was, like I didn't have a website I, I still actually at the time of recording. it's a It's got a coming soon page on the website. Um, I didn't have any kind of web presence. I wasn't doing any kind of marketing, but people were telling their friends and, and I had money coming in and I had work. And so I've realized now that, you, you, I mean, you need a bit of both for a long-term sustainable business, uh, but it, it, it was a hard, hard lesson to learn that, oh, this thing that I'm so passionate about and in fact was probably too close to, which is self-care for teachers, I was too close to see that it actually wasn't, um, it wasn't a business. It was a hobby. And that's fine as long as you know that that's what it is because then you're not putting expectations on it that it's going to pay the mortgage. <laughs> mm. I think that's so interesting though because, you know, we're in such a time, well, for everyone I guess, but particularly for women of, you know, lady startups and people yep. going out on their own and with the COVID crisis right now some people might be forced to go out on their that's own. Right. It might not be something that they've chosen to do. And I think I feel like I'm seeing now more than ever what you're talking about, those things popping up in my social media feeds about become a copywriter and earn six figures yep. in whatever many weeks and oh, yeah, start take this business. Three weeks. <laughs> and it can be very easy, particularly while people are feeling a bit vulnerable right now to be sucked into a lot of those online marketers as you're referring mm. to. But I mean, what do you think 
what would be the most helpful advice you could offer to someone based on some of those pitfalls that you um, fell down? I mean, you mentioned not to get you know, tricked into signing up for something that may not be that helpful. But are there some other tips that you could offer people? Yeah. And and even on that, like, I, I you know, I did some online courses and it's not that they weren't helpful. They were very helpful, but they uh, were perhaps selling themselves as the be all end all. And it was only one very narrow aspect of business. And I, and I, because I wasn't ticking off all the other boxes or covering all the other bases and I didn't know that I was needing to, um, so it wasn't necessarily that the courses weren't helpful, but just don't put all your hopes and dreams in one online course, I suppose. And I and I and I didn't think that that's what I was doing, but I didn't know what I didn't know, I suppose. Um, but what I would actually recommend is if you want to go into business, go into a program like Startup on Ramp, or um, you know, go and chat with your local chamber of commerce. Um, I know that Startup on Ramp, I'm pretty sure it's Australia wide. It's a program that helps uh, move people through the process of ideation, validation of their business idea to make sure that it's actually going to work before you've gone and invested too much time and and money uh, into, you know, setting up a whole website and, and building all sorts of things that actually then might turn out to be the wrong things. Um, mm. So I, I would probably recommend going that road um, and check out, you know, your local co-working space or startup hubs because I think that they have a different method or, you know, a more tried and tested and proven method. It's not necessarily as flashy as some of the American online marketers, but um, it's probably more helpful and more realistic. Mm. So you are running your two businesses alongside each other now. You mentioned what a typical workday had looked like for you back when you were a teacher. What what does a typical workday look like for you now? Well, I probably have two different typical workdays. Uh, and and I probably prefer to think of it as a typical work week. I because a lot of I mean obviously teachers are at school during the hours of nine to three at least, um, if not seven to five. I have a fair amount of time during most weekdays to to work on the other business on the on the the podcast production and that sort of thing. So I try and take Thursdays off because I work Saturdays in self care for teachers. Um, so I usually coach on Saturdays and occasionally on on evenings and that sort of thing. And then during the week. Um, you know, during during the day, I will do a little bit of work on self-care for teacher things like writing posts and, and doing my own podcast. And then the rest of the time I work on other people's podcasts and supporting my, my Perk Digital clients. And um, I work from home and I have been for a couple of years. So, um, you know, I'm fortunate in that the the COVID crisis and the sending everybody to work from home hasn't actually disrupted my day-to-day that much because it's kind of what I was already doing. Although my husband has been working from home and we, you know, we had to rearrange some office space there just to make that work. But um, and I also am able to kind of work with my with my body and with my cycle, um, making sure that I'm looking after myself around that because I'm in control of my schedule now. I'm able to, you know, schedule things uh, in the weeks when I'm not going to be incapacitated by endometriosis, um, and I, I'm also able to, you know, wear elastic banded pants and have a hot water bottle on my lap (laughs) while I tap away at the computer. Well, look, we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast. And you've certainly done that in a multitude of ways from making a fairly big career change to working for yourself and speaking out on issues that really matter to you. What would you say has been your bravest moment? And how did you find the courage to go for it? I think my bravest, uh, 
It's a good question. I think my bravest moment was probably the meeting I had to have with my deputy principal, uh, you know, back in, I can't remember now if it was late 2015 or early 2016 to say, this is not going to work long term. Um, that was that was probably my bravest moment, but I think because it was the first outward step and also because, you know, there's always dynamics around like, oh, I don't want to disappoint my boss or that sort of thing. And even though I was saying, don't worry, we don't have to do anything right now, but like in the next few years, you know, so I wasn't putting any kind of immediate timelines around it, but that was a really big scary moment, I think, because so much of the future was unknown. I mean, it's always unknown, but when you're in a bit of a routine and you think, well, this is my job and this is what I do year to year, you you kind of think you know what the future is going to hold. Obviously, COVID-19 has proved to us all that none of us know at all. <laughs> um, but I think because so much of it was unknown and I was having to say, hey, I want to do something else and I don't really know what it is. <laughs> um, and I think the reason I had the courage to do that was probably because I was very aware that the consequences of not doing that were were scarier than the immediate fear of having to speak up and, and voice my, you know, change, change of career plans or um, desires. So I, I was very, I think I'd worked out very clearly that the cost of staying um, was scarier than the cost of changing. So that, that would probably mm-hmm. be what I'd say to other people facing big decisions like that is just really sit with your decisions and talk to a trusted person about it or do some journaling or, you know, but ask yourself those important questions like, well, what is, what is it going to cost me if I don't make this decision? Mm. And I think often courage comes from seeing the actions of other women, whether Mm. it's women in our own field or women out there in the world or women in our own networks or families. Who are are some of the women who you look to and who inspire you? Mm. Um, It's going to sound really lame, uh, but my (laughs) mum, and it's not lame if you knew my mum, she's actually been a little bit of a a quiet trailblazer in a lot of ways. Um, So my mum is a Uniting Church minister and um, she was also the, so she was the first female moderator in the Uniting Church in Queensland, um, which was back in 2011. I think she started that and she's, she's back in a, in a a parish now. Um, But she also was the first female army chaplain or woman army chaplain in Australia back in the early 90s and I was a kid at the time actually we were the same age so she was she was 32 I think when she did that and I'm 32 now um and she had two little two little girls and um you know I grew up watching my mum speak in the front of the church every every week and I probably didn't appreciate when I was growing up how much that inspired me but also shaped me because I grew up seeing a woman being a leader and a woman using her voice to lead and to, in some ways, I think there's a lot of extra pressures on women who are, who are doing trailblazy things um, because you have to be twice as good as a man would have to be to be uh, acknowledged half as much. But I also, you know, I also saw that she was able to have a, a, a life at home, a supportive husband who supported her to go out and, you know, have a career. Um, so I think I would have to say my mum. No, I think especially as we do get a little bit older, we start to see our our parents or our mums in particular in potentially mm. different lights and really appreciating some of what they've achieved and not having recognised it necessarily when we were younger. Yeah. Um, and for any of our listeners out there who might be looking to make a change in their own lives, do you have any final tips for them? 
I would say don't be rash. Do your homework, be methodical and, and make a plan. But then also don't spend so long analysing the decision that you never make it. So I think um, it's easy to hear a story like mine and think, oh, well, you know, the, the path is so obvious, but it's only obvious in hindsight. Um, so the dots only join in reverse. You have to just kind of make a move and then see how things look and make the next move and then see how things look and make the next move. So don't wait for all your ducks to line up before you before you make a change. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Ellen. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Jackie. That was Ellen Ronalds-Keen, founder of Self-Care for Teachers, which you can find at selfcareforteachers.com.au. You can also hear Ellen on the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast and check out her business, Perk Digital. We'll include the links in the show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>